When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This too is God's holy word. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your word before us this morning. We also thank you for the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit about whom, Jesus, you said would lead us into truth and would be the teacher of all things. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and lead us into truth as we look at the Holy Word. You give us insight, discernment, understanding about Jesus and what he's done for us and what it means for our lives. The ways that we ought to live, the ways that we ought to worship, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Give us insight about these things. We thank you that we are greatly loved by you, Father, greatly loved by you. And we have so great a salvation in your Son. We ask together that you would um, help to make us attentive and that you would please help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to the Bible, helpful to the church, and brings glory to Jesus. It's in that name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I think it's rather obvious as we read this text that it's a little bit of a strange one. Right? Peter's told to go catch a fish, to open up the fish's mouth, to take some money out, and to pay taxes with that. That's holy tax reform. And I'm sure you're wondering, okay, well, what, what does that mean? What are we going to do with this text, Brit? Uh, I'm not perfectly sure, but let's try to explore it a little bit. Let's first talk about what this tax was. It's called here, from the version that I'm reading from the ESV, the two drachma tax. So first of all, what is a drachma? A drachma was a Greek silver coin that was worth about a day's wages, 12 hours of work. That was a day back then, millennials, 12 hours of work. (laughs) Just kidding. And one of these coins represented that, a day's labor. So this is the two drachma tax. So this was a Jewish tax It consisted of two days' work that every Jewish male over the age of 20 was required to pay. The money that was collected went to the upkeep of the temple there in Jerusalem. But this tax had deep roots in the life of Israel and deep significant meaning in the economy of God and so in the people of Israel. So we'll go all the way back to the book of Exodus to see where this came from. In Exodus chapter 30, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Whenever you take a census of the people of Israel, each man who is counted must pay a ransom, interesting word, for himself, interesting idea, to the Lord. Then no plague will strike the people as you count them. Each person who is counted must give a small piece of silver as a sacred offering, key phrase, to the Lord. This payment is half a shekel based on the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 geras. 
All who have reached their 20th birthday must give this sacred offering to the Lord. When this offering is given to the Lord to purify your lives, making you right with him, the rich must not give more than the specified amount, the poor must not give less. Tax reform. Receive this ransom money from the Israelites, ransom money, and use it for the care of the tabernacle later on the temple. It will bring the Israelites to the Lord's attention and it will purify your lives. Isn't that interesting? And don't we learn a lot about how the old covenant worked there? It was radically dependent upon the Israelites obeying, doing, bringing, and providing for themselves what God required of them. And then that had some merit before God that made them right with God and had some sort of purifying and protective effect in their lives. So this tax that's in question here, often just called the temple tax during that time, was not merely a perfunctory thing of, hey, we need some money to do road repair to the temple. It had deep, deep religious and life significance for the Israelites. And that would have been understood in the time of Jesus. There's a lot going on here. And you'll notice from the text that it was expected of Jesus that he too, like every Israelite male over the age of 20, would pay the tax. It wasn't fully yet acknowledged or understood that he was a Messiah, and he was expected by the tax collector here to pay the tax. So when they arrive in Capernaum, they being Jesus and the disciples, arriving either by boat, as they often did, or via land, there would have been a little tax collection booth there. And the tax collector comes up to Peter and says, Uh, phrases it strangely, does not your teacher pay the tax? And it's meant to have a positive affirmation. And so Peter answers it as it was expected. He simply says, yes, of course he pays the tax. But, But he hadn't paid the tax, right? So Peter goes to where Jesus is in the house and he's gonna engage him on this issue of this very significant historical religious tax. Peter walks in the house and Jesus seizes the opportunity. He takes control of the opportunity and he begins to speak to Peter in verse 25. And it's obvious as we see this conversation unfold that Jesus is talking more, he's talking about much more than just a tax here, something bigger than what it may have seemed. Jesus is using this instance to speak about the kingdom of God and its nature and those who would enter and become part of the kingdom of God. Notice how Jesus begins to unfold this analogy and draw the attention away from the mere tax to the kingdom and an opportunity to teach. In verse 25, he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So now he's obviously got Simon Peter thinking a little bit, right? Simon just thought he was going to go in and say, Jesus, you got any money? We got to pay this tax. And Jesus is saying, so what do you think about kings in general? Who do they tax? Their own family, their sons and daughters, or other people? What an interesting question. Jesus brings up this issue of kings and their kingdoms and their kids. Kings and their kingdoms and their kids. And now Peter's thinking. You'll remember that the first public words we have recorded from Jesus in the book of Matthew are this. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near. 
It's the first thing Jesus said in his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. And then we're told right after that, Matthew chapter 4, that what Jesus did was going around from city to city, proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the good news about the kingdom. So with the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God had come near to God's people. And there was something about this coming near of it. There was something about this expression of it. There was something about what Jesus was embodying and doing and saying that would be good news for everybody. Jesus went around proclaiming the good news about the kingdom. And the the substance of that for Israel and subsequently for us was that there was a change happening There was a reform of sorts happening in the way that God's people would relate to God and the way that God would relate to his people. People had related to God in that Old Testament sort of manner represented by the temple text in this sort of picture here, represented by that text that we read in Exodus 30 where the people always had to do something. Very specific things, lots of things in order to make themselves and keep themselves right with God. They had to do all these different things as prescribed in the law. It was an economy. It was a life of sacrifice to God and obedience to the law. And the implications were profound. If you did those things and did those things well, then you might be in right standing with God. If you failed to do it, then your standing with God was in danger. Jesus came announcing a good news with the kingdom. That the way that he was going to relate to people and people relate to him would experience a transformation, a new dynamic that was good news. Now, Jesus said in the book of Matthew, I did not come to abolish the law. I'm not going to do away with all of that. I am going to fulfill the law. There'll be a change in the the nature of it and what it's accomplished and what Jesus accomplishes through it. So Jesus tried to, in the Gospel of Matthew here, spend a lot of his time explaining that. We have in the Gospel of Matthew, back in chapter 13, several parables. Uh, We see a bunch more throughout the Gospels where Jesus is comparing the kingdom to other things to try to help his listeners get it. He said over and over again, over and over again, excuse me, the kingdom of God is like... And then he would compare it to something. He would draw an analogy to common points of reference because things were changing and it was a profound change in the economy of God. And the picture that often emerged when Jesus was trying to help people understand the kingdom, when he would say, the kingdom of God is like, this picture emerges of something that was hidden but is now discovered and is of great value. You'll remember this from a couple short parables in Matthew 13, where Jesus says, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. In both of these short little parables, the subject there finds something of surprising 
and surpassing value. And Jesus is saying, he's teaching them and us, that the kingdom is like that. That there's this new quality that has come with Jesus that is something of new and exceeding value that is meant to be discovered by people. It's like a hidden treasure. It's like a pearl of greatest price. That picture there of newly discovered exceeding value is of Jesus. Jesus himself is the good news about the kingdom. That is why in our text a couple weeks ago, at the beginning of Matthew 17, where we have the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is pictured in glory with Moses and Elijah there with him. The voice comes from heaven, from the glory cloud, and the Father says about Jesus, this is my beloved Son, whom I love. Listen to him. In other words, over and above Moses and Elijah. And what did Moses and Elijah represent? The law and the prophets. Love you, church. Good job. Over and above that old way of relating to God, the old covenant represented by the law and the prophets, represented in our vignette by the temple tax, represented in what we read in Exodus 30. Over and above that, there is now good news. It has to do with Jesus. Listen to him. That is why on the night Jesus was born, the angel appeared to the shepherds and said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news of the kingdom is the old way of relating to God through sacrifice in obedience to the law, has in the time of Jesus blossomed into a new way. There's a reformation, a tax reform, if you will, from works to grace. From something that is earned to something that is received. To sacrifices required to a sacrifice supplied. So, Jesus invites Peter and us to think about those things then by presenting us with this picture about kings and their kingdoms and their kids. He's trying to teach us and Peter here's something again about the kingdom. The kingdom is like. And he's comparing what the temple represents, that old way of life with God, to a common point of reference that everyone in that day would have gotten, though seems foreign to us, kings and kingdoms and their kids. And now think about it. This is obvious what Jesus says here. Who do you think, or what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? This is obvious. No king taxes his own sons and daughters. Taxes other people. And the reason that assumption is made, the reason that kings did not tax their sons and daughters is because they, as the kids of the king, had a special standing before, a special relationship with the king. A place of privilege, a place of intimacy, a place where something is supplied rather than earned, and a place where they are exempt from the taxes that other people were under. It's rather obvious. And so Jesus says in verse 26, 
when Peter answers, well, from others. Jesus says, then the sons are free. That's the key point to the whole text. Jesus says there that the children are free. Some of your translations say exempt, but the word in the Greek is free. In other words, it's the opposite of obligated or enslaved or under a heavy load or hemmed in. The sons and the daughters of the king are free. The good news of the kingdom is that in Jesus we have a savior and a king who has made us free. So we read things like this in the book of Galatians. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman who is subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us. Pause right there. Do you remember Exodus 30 when I told you to take note of the word ransom? And in Exodus 30, remember, the Israelites were supposed to supply money to ransom themselves. They had to supply for themselves. Look at the change in economy. God is now supplying for them. God sent his son to ransom by freedom for us who were slaves to the law under the obligations and the yoke and the requirements of it so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. That is the good news that Jesus went around the villages proclaiming that God himself would now meet the requirements of the law on our behalf through Jesus. And rather than something that had to be earned, there was now something that just needed to be received. Rather than having to work real hard, we would now have a standing in grace. Rather, rather, rather than a sacrifice that had to be made, there was a sacrifice made on our behalf. So that we've gone from slaves under the yoke, under the burden, under the requirements hemmed in by it, to kids of the king. Kids of the king. God has put his spirit in our heart by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That was radical language in the Jewish world in the first century. That we could relate to God as Abba. You know what Abba means in Aramaic? What does it mean? Daddy. 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 Fifi, my three-year-old daughter, she calls me sweet, sweet daddy. You know what that does in the heart of a dad? When your three-year-old little girl looks up at you and says, sweet, sweet daddy. Do you know what God has done for us through Christ? That we could look up to the holy God of the universe and relate to him as sweet, sweet daddy. Jesus is trying to teach Peter and us here that with himself, Christ, 
there has come a new and glorious and living way to relate to God. The old way represented by that temple tax and that text in Exodus and the new way represented strangely by this fish with a coin in the mouth. The book of Hebrews helps us to understand this transition and how they're tied together and the continuity thereof. Hebrews chapter 10 will be helpful to you right now. We're going to read 22 verses from Hebrews chapter 10. This is really important stuff. It makes a lot of sense. It's rather lengthy. Can you hang on for 22 verses? Okay, this ties together the old and the new way and it shows you how they work together in Jesus. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. They were not the good things themselves, the law of Moses. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. You following? This is really important. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Pause right there. Do you get that? So they would have to bring a sacrifice for their sins and then have to do again and again and again and again. And it was as though guilt compounded annually. Verse four, for it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Key phrase there, take away sins. What did John the Baptist say at the Jordan River the first time he saw Jesus growing up? What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away. That's a key theological phrase. The Lamb of God, the sacrifice provided, who does something that the sacrifices that we once brought were not able to do. Verse five, that is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings. You have given me a body to offer. You are not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, Jesus speaking, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. For Christ said, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. Key phrase here for our understanding today. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, who's that? Offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. It's us. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, and this is a quote from Jeremiah 21, 
where we get this new covenant grammar. This is a new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place, which is represented of, of ultimate intimacy with God, represented above. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See the connection between the the old covenant, the old way represented in our vignette by that temple two drachma tax and this new way that Jesus is trying to highlight to Peter and to us. Here's the thing about the coin and the fish. It was unexpected and surprising and of value and it was something that only God could do. Only God makes a fish with the right amount of money in its mouth Readily catchable by Peter, who seems to never catch any fish unless Jesus is there anyway. (laughs) And then the salient point to realize is that Jesus said, and that payment, Peter, will cover you as well. There he's telegraphing something to us. He's throwing it in front of us, saying, Peter, there is a new economy. I will now provide payment for you. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 was talking about. So that relationship to God, entry into God's presence, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, sanctification, are now provided by God, not earned by us. This is called technically good news. Paul was tripping out over it in Philippians chapter 3 when he said this, stark language here for a warning he gives to the church in Philippi. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That is, let let me explain. Give me your attention. That is people that were coming into the church that were saying, yeah, yeah, maybe you like entered into this Jesus thing and you were forgiven for your sins once. But you know, if you're going to stay in good standing with God and if you're going to please God, you got to keep doing good things and offering sacrifices and earn and pay your way trying to draw people back into the old way. And the apostle Paul said, look out for those dogs, those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, a little bit graphic. They want you to be circumcised because in the old covenant, that pleased God. And so Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ. And key phrase, put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, what we can do or what we can earn. And then Paul, in a very Pauline way here, goes on to boast of his credentials for a moment. He says, oh, I myself have reason to have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has a reason to have confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) 
He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the best tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. In other words, nobody else is more serious about the law than me. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow, Paul. But then look what he says under this new economy in Christ. But whatever gain I had, speaking of those things, what he had earned, what he had brought to the table, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, speaking of those previous qualifications, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's the key verse. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, the coin in the mouth of the fish. God's provision to provide for us our purification, our forgiveness, our right standing before God, all those things that Israel had to do for themselves in Exodus chapter 30. Now notice the further development of the text that is before us. Look what happens immediately following. It's surprising what we don't have is the actual account of the miracle. Matthew usually tells us about the unfolding of the miracle. Here he just tells us Jesus' directive for Peter to go catch the miracle fish. He doesn't tell us about Peter going and doing it. We assume that Peter did that, of course. The reason that Matthew does that is he doesn't want our attention to camp out on the miracle. Rather, he wants our attention to fall immediately toward its meaning. So he rolls us right into chapter 18, verse 1. And remember, in the original text, the chapter and verse breaks were not part of God's word. We put those later to help us navigate through it. So this was a seamless narrative in the original text. We always put like a hard return, a hard break between chapters, but not so in the original. This is immediately connected. In fact, it says so. It says in chapter 18, verse one, at that time, literally in the Greek, in that hour, at that same time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Stop right there. The fact that the disciples ask this question right when or after Jesus tells Peter about this miracle money fish shows us that they were kind of getting the hint. Notice how they immediately ask about the kingdom. They don't want elaboration on the taxes or or how can we, you know, always get our tax money from fish mouths. They, They don't ask that sort of thing. They say, They're like connecting the dots that this good news about the kingdom, this transformation from something that is earned to something that is provided, a sacrifice that is brought to a sacrifice that is given by God. They're connecting dots in their head and they say, well, if if, if that's it, if this good news about the kingdom is what God is going to provide for us rather than us for ourselves, if that's what the kingdom is like and you're calling us into that kingdom as kids of the king, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom then? 
Because according to their way of thinking formed by the Old Testament, the greatest in the kingdom would have been the guy who was like Paul, who kept all the rules rightly. It was very serious about them and did everything correctly. That would be the one who would be able to say, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. He would be like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who stood and prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else. I keep the rules. I pay tithes from everything I get and I fast twice a week. I'm doing really well. If that is being supplanted by this new way of grace, the disciples ask, then who's the greatest in the kingdom? How do we think about how we're doing before God? See the question? See how it got connected in their minds to the issue of the fish with the kingdom? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if it's not measured by obedience to the law, as it once was, then how does it work is the intimation of their question. What is the good news? What what is this treasure? And how do we live in consonance? How do we live consistently? How do we live faithfully to this good news that all is grace, that Jesus provides himself as a sacrifice of sin. That's what they're asking. And then look at the way Jesus answers it. Verse two. And calling a child to him, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now there is a juxtaposition, isn't there? to how Paul described his previous relationship to God. I did all the right things. I went to the right school. I had the right pedigree. I kept the right rules. I did it with the right amount of zeal. And Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. There's a radical reform happening here. The way to God is provided, not earned. Now, there is much in this imagery of a child. Unless you turn... Unless you turn, it's like repent, do an about face, and become like this child, you won't enter into the kingdom. What is it about a child that Jesus is trying to get at? What what is he trying to draw out? What's he trying to push us to, draw us into? The disciples say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? you, You won't even get to the kingdom unless you become like a child. What is he saying? Well, there's a lot about a child but there's one thing we cannot miss. Children are wholly and fully dependent upon. Mom, dad, guardian, parent, adult, other. Children are wholly and fully and always dependent upon the other. That's what he's trying to get at. The good news of the kingdom is that the call on us now is to become fully dependent on what God has done for us in Jesus rather than what we think we could do for ourselves before God. Like a child, fully dependent, freeing ourselves. It's a radical call. It's not easy to do. Freeing ourselves from the self-deluding idea that we have somehow earned something before God. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 says we are saved by grace 
through faith and not of works so that no one can boast. Grace through faith. According to what Jesus has done for us, not what we can do for ourselves. That, that's what, that's what, that, that childlike dependency upon God providing for us forgiveness of sins, entry into heaven, relationship with God is what Paul was talking about back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 when he said this one more time. I want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends, there's that word, like a child, depends on faith in God. The invitation Jesus issues in the miraculous money fish and here with a child in front of them, is that we are meant to be kids of the king. In case you missed it, the king is Jesus. The invitation is into his, his kingdom where he rules and reigns. Our standing is meant to be that we are kids of the king, free from the tax, the obligation, the burden of sacrifice and obedience, religion always trying to earn. That is so profound because one of the predominant understandings in our world about God is that if I work hard enough and earn, then someday he may. Jesus said that's not the case. The scriptures teach us that the law only ever always shows us to be bad. Nobody ever gets to hold up God's law and say, see, look, I'm good. The law only ever always shows us to be bad. The good news is that Jesus was good on our behalf. Jesus succeeded where we failed. Jesus paid the price where we were in poverty and unable to do so. Jesus ransomed us once and for all through his body, the sacrifice for sins, when we were unable to pay our debt so that our standing before God is now in grace as children. So again, consonant idea to that text in Galatians. Romans says this, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. In other words, am I doing good enough? Am I measuring up on judgment day? Am I going to make it? But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, sweet, sweet daddy. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what the magic money fish meant. It's about kings and their kingdoms and their kids. It's about the king and his kingdom and his kids. And we, through faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, become the kids of the king. We have a special standing. We are free. And what the Christian life is then is trying to live out of that place of freedom and being the beloved of God. You are perfectly loved by God as you sit there now. He could never love you anymore for he loves you fully and perfectly more than we could ever imagine, evidenced by the fact that he gave his son for us. So you sit there as the beloved daughter of God as you sit now, the beloved son of God through faith in Jesus Christ, fully once and for all forgiven of all your sins, which have been many. The way provided for us. And so 
live out of that space and identity. Don't act like a slave again. Don't act like a slave again. It's God mad at me. Am I going to measure up? Am I, I better do this. Live as a free son and a daughter who are exempt from the idea of the temple tax. John the Apostle, who was certainly there that day, would write later on and say, See how very much our Father loves us? For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. So live out of that identity as God's daughter, as God's son. What does it mean to live out of that identity? My goodness, enjoy it. Jesus was nailed to the cross for us, risen from the dead for our sanctification. We stand before God in grace because of the price has been paid as, as holy and innocent and fully accepted and loved. The way has been opened to us. My goodness, enjoy that status. Stop holding against yourself what God nailed to the cross in Christ. Let it go. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Enjoy that. Live out of that place of being the beloved. And let that form a different sort of obedience in you. Let that form in us an obedience of joy rather than obligation. An obedience that is thrilled to obey because it knows that it's operating from a place of being loved, not from a space of trying to earn love. That changes everything. And live out of that identity, meaning, man, like draw near to God in your life. That's the whole point of the thing. Jesus died on the cross to bring us to God. So let the tone and the tenor and the essence of your life be a radical pursuit of God. Remember that little part from the end of Hebrews? Remember that? And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. That is representative language of the very presence, the greatest intimacy known to Israel at the time with God by the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and that curtain was torn in two? That was a symbolic picture that really happened of the entryway to intimacy with God being open to us. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God. You know, not everybody got to go into the presence of a king back in the old day. Right? You couldn't just run up to the king. You can't just run up to the president and have unlimited access. But the, king, the king's kids did. We're the king's kids. We have unlimited, immediate access to the love and the presence and the person of God the Father. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood. And then... Since you are so near to the king and you are the beloved daughter and son of the king, here's what I would say to us. Let's live in a way that is consonant with that or consistent with that or congruent to that idea. Right? Look what Ephesians says. Therefore, I, as a prisoner for serving the Lord, Paul writing from prison, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. 
For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. He gives some examples there. But what he says is, lead a life worthy of your calling. The person who doesn't understand grace thinks, well, if that's true and God has paid the price for me and I'm under grace and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. They think that's freedom, but that's pseudo-freedom. That's false freedom. That way of self always leads us back into bondage. The man or woman or child who understands grace says, well, God made a way, Jesus paid the price, so man, I want to pursue him and I want to live like Jesus and I want to bring glory and honor and praise to his name. So I'm going to be more concerned in my life with going God's way rather than going my way. And there is freedom. There, freedom is discovered. And the final thing I'll say is, did you notice how Jesus said, hey, we're free from that old way, from that tax, Peter. However, verse verse 27 in chapter 17, I don't want to give offense to them. Pick up on that. Jesus is free from that obligation But he says, you know, it's not always just about our freedom. It's often considering and thinking about and serving others. Jesus as the son shows us how to use our freedom as sons and daughters. Not an entitlement that serves self, but an opportunity that serves God and others. Last two verses. Live as free people but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve God and serve others. That's what freedom looks like. That's true freedom. It's not an entitlement for evil. It's an opportunity for righteousness. Thank you, Lord for this good news that you've brought to us in Jesus and its implications for our lives. And Lord, uh, gosh, if there's anybody here who has never um, by faith laid hold of that good news and put their trust in what Jesus did for them on the cross and received the forgiveness of sins, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause them to do it this morning that they would say, Jesus, I, I, I'm a sinner, but you're the Savior. Thank you for paying my price. Save me. Forgive me. And then, God, that you would, as you will, fill them with your spirit, and they would know you, Father, as sweet, sweet Daddy. And in your sweet love, their lives would be restored. Thank you, God. And, Lord, for all of us here, Would you help us by your spirit, God, to enter into the sweetness of the Father's love? Your word says that we are beloved sons and daughters. Help us receive it by faith, God. Help us to rest in it, to rejoice in it, and to live out of it. And examine our lives where there's dissonance with this kingdom way, where we're not living as a king's kids ought to.
and teach us to repent. Thank you that we're free from condemnation for forgiveness in you, but teach us to repent and to pursue hard after you. Thank you that you love us and you're near to us, God.